It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. I am here with the fabulous Kari Gale. Kari is not only one of my oldest, she's not old, but one of my <laughs> long time, I guess I should say long time best friends. And her bio is that she is an artist, an illustrator, a traveler, a minimalist, a tiny house owner, and is the co-host of the podcast Pilgrim Lost. So Kari, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, we've been we've been trading podcast duties. I was able to be a guest on her Pilgrim Lost podcast. Kari, tell us a little bit about what that podcast is about. Yeah, so Pilgrim Lost really was birthed out of um, a pilgrimage walk that my co-host and I both did on the Camino de Santiago. Uh, at different different years, we didn't do it together. But um, for those of your listeners that don't know, it is a 500 mile walk across the country of Spain. And um, for for me, in I did it with my sister back originally. The first time I walked it was in 2013. And so, for both my co-host Tony and I, we had these pretty life changing experiences on on the Camino. And so we decided uh, after coming back and sort of sharing stories that we really wanted to talk about those life changing things that happen, but bring them back into the everyday. So that this this privilege, this incredible privilege that we had of leaving and going and, and walking on this route, not not everyone has that. Hardly anyone has that. In fact, we right. felt so lucky to be able to do that. So um, what were some of those things that we experienced that practices, ways of being that we um, entered into on the Camino? How could we bring those back into everyday, into everyday life? So those are what our conversations about some, you know, a lot of our guests have walked the Camino. Some of them haven't even heard of it. So really it's, it's this idea of living life to the fullest. How do we, um, how do we really be present in our lives in a way that brings abundance and um one of our little our little hashtags is um life and hopeful motion and really that's what it's about so so what would you say just in a in a bit phrase what would you say was the biggest thing that you learned while you were on that walk well, gosh, that brings me, I mean, that's a whole story because really the reason that I went on uh, the first walk, the first pilgrimage was was because I went through a really tough divorce. And I think that's what we're here to talk a little bit about, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it kind of all started there. I mean, the, the, the divorce um, was in 2012 and in the process of my ex-husband and I separating, uh, my sister and I had seen the movie The Way, which is a movie with Martin Sheen, and it really brought Americans uh, a clearer picture of what the Camino was. And so we we were invited to see that movie, uh, and and really decided after watching the movie that we wanted to we wanted to do this pilgrimage. Now, my sister and I had both lived in Spain in college, so we were both um, able to speak Spanish and really had a love of the country to start out with. So when this sort of 
opportunity presented itself, it really became, um, it became a way for me to have something to look forward to throughout my entire separation. It was, I was desperate for something to look forward to in the process of my life imploding and falling apart. There was this, um, I don't want to call it a carrot, but there was this bright light at the end that I was, I was, um, planning for, I could put all of my energy into training and planning and preparing for this, this epic journey. And really that journey ended up being the closure that I needed for my marriage because mm. I, my, my marriage ended in 2012 and Lisa and I walked the Camino in, uh, spring of 2013. So it was just a few months later. So it really was this time for me to grieve and, um, and then just imagine what my life was going to be. Because really, I, I use this phrase a lot when I talk about those days. It felt like after everything happened, there was just this giant blank canvas. Nothing that I had planned was happening. As I said, there was this implosion and I had this empty space. And empty spaces can be really frightening. Scary, and yeah. So... Uh, I didn't know what to do with it. And so on that walk, I, I gave myself a chance to really imagine what it was that I wanted to do and how I wanted my life to look. And that really birthed a lot of the ways that I'm living now. So, um, you know, whether it's for me, it was simpler, a simpler life. It was yeah. art, art being a priority versus something that I just did every now and again. Um, those were things that all really as I said, birthed on the Camino. That's, that's wonderful. So just as a side note, Kari has one or two books? Two books, yeah. Two books. And what are they called? They're the illustrations from that walk and yeah, they're so just the beautiful. Oh, thank you. The first one is called The Art of Walking. And so these were drawings that I actually created on the Camino um, at live as I walked and uh, went through that particular journey. I ended up because you didn't day. take pictures, you drew. No, in fact, it's kind of a, it's kind of a fun story because my sister always takes credit for this because she said she was my muse because we decided to go on the journey together and she does not walk as fast as I do. So I ended up reaching our destinations a lot earlier than she did, but we had decided not to bring anything digital. So we didn't have phones to text back and forth and tell each other where we were. So I would find our, our um, lodging for the night in an albergue, which is a, a pilgrim hostel. And then it, it would potentially be by the path, but sometimes in these small towns, there'd be 10 or 15 uh, albergues. So I'd get myself a, a bed, get ourselves set up, get a glass of wine, come back to the path, sit down on the path. And so this path is, is marked. So my, I knew my sister would be walking along it at some point or another. And so I would sit and I would draw what was in front of me. And then she would come along and we would head back to the hostel. So I ended up doing this every single day because she was always behind me. Um, and so she said, I, if I hadn't been slower than you, you would not have any drawings. Which is <laughs> Way to which, take credit, Lissa. <laughs> I know. Well, but it's probably true. So I ended up having these drawings and really that process, Jill, of drawing every day completely changed the way that I felt about art. Uh, previous to the Camino, art was something I did if I had something to say, or I wanted to say something, or I, I, I guess really what it came down to was I thought I needed to have something profound to say to create art. And what I realized on the Camino is the drawing of what was right in front of me was 
much more impactful, at least to me. It was, it was a documenting of, of my life, my moments, and creating those memories and um, those experiences in my journal was, I, at, th- at that point, I didn't, ca- I didn't care what other people thought about it. I just loved it. And for the first time in my life, I loved art in a way that was, really? was not about performance. It was about, um, it was about the process of it. So, so I created that book called The Art of Walking. And then um, that whole experience was so profound that I ended up quitting my job um, about the middle of 2015 and um, well, actually, if we're going to be really honest, I was laid off, but I was, I was the happiest laid off person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had actually been praying for a way out of this job. So I ended up getting laid off. I bought a one-way ticket to Europe the next day and I ended up traveling for about 15 months. Um, I walked another Camino and then um, I ended up on the island of Iona, which is a tiny little island in Scotland. And I did an artist residency there for two months in the early part of 2016 and two months at the end of 2016. And out of that came my second book, which is called Portraits of Iona. And it's basically my stories and experiences and drawings from Iona. So they're both very personal books. Both of my my books are done. I do them for myself. And if other people enjoy them, that's awesome. I that's kind of the way I've, I've moved my, my art and my passions is, is really creating things that bring me joy and bring me delight. And, um, and that's very different than how I used to think about art. Mm. So one of my favorite visual imageries of your time in Iona is the thought of you sleeping in this little, um, little tiny, what did you call it? A a shepherd's bothel? Bothy. It's a, yeah, it's a shepherd's bothy. It's a tiny little trailer. And, um, really that was that stay was was what uh really gave me the idea that i could live in a tiny house it was something i hadn't ever thought of it before i thought people were crazy uh my sister really was interested in tiny houses and i thought there's no way and then after traveling and traveling for 15 months with just a backpack just a few items on my back and my you know my art supplies uh a pair of hiking boots pretty much it uh, staying in this little tiny bothy, which had a bed, uh, a, a desk, a place to put, you know, a, a little shelf. It was a very simple, simple life. And I absolutely loved it. And I thought, how can I, again, this is going back to that idea of right. how can I bring this back to my everyday life? And so I started this, this sort of, I don't know, it was a little seed of an idea that I could potentially build a tiny house. And so that's what I decided to do eventually when I got back to the States. Um, and I spent about a year building my, building my house, which my, which my father designed. And, um, and that's where I live now. And I just coming up on three years in June. That's, that's great. Well, the reason why it gives me great visual imagery is because Kari stands at six foot three. And so um, I, I always feel like a miniature next to her. Uh, <laughs> so, so I just, I just kind of think that's great imagery. <laughs> Well, it's pretty hysterical when people find out that I live in a tiny house. They look me up and down and up and down and they give me sort of a strange, strange, you know, questioning look. And uh, I say, well, I built it myself. And so it's everything. When, when normal people walk into my tiny house, they feel out of, you know, feel a little bit like Alice in Wonderland because everything is built for my height. So it's yes, kind of I do. 
it's kind of a fun t- twist and turn on the, on the normal where I always feel so big and so out of, uh, you know, nothing fits me. So, right. All the bench tops are, are at my chest and yep, yep. <laughs> so, well, let's, let's change gears a little bit here. And we are going to talk about your faith after this traumatic divorce. And so I want to just explore relationships with you a little bit and how, how you processed all of this, this change in your life. But first of all, to kind of help us um, understand kind of your viewpoint is tell me just a little bit about your family of origin and kind of how relationships worked in your family. Yeah, the, the, the idea of going back into that space and thinking of, of my earlier thoughts on even what marriage was like, where did it come from? How did, how did my family talk about it? I, I have a, a fairly small family. Um, I think the thing that sticks out when I started to think about this, when I got sort of pondering the idea of, of being on this podcast, one of the biggest things that I thought about about my childhood was this idea of performance, of perfection. Mm. I, my, my father uh, was he passed away this last August. Uh, so I am going to talk about him in past tense. He, he was a man who was very exacting. He was incredibly talented, incredibly smart, yes. an architect, incredible architect. Um, but there was this unspoken, I don't even remember ever being told that I had to be perfect, but it was just known. Okay. All of my siblings, well, all two of my siblings, all of us were incredibly high performers in school in art, in, well, maybe not art, but anything that we put our hands to, we were expected to be very good. And relationships, it was, I remember, you know, the strongest sort of relationship I had in the sense of uh, sort of feeling, my mom was the cheerleader and my dad was, was the person that held the expectations out. Okay. So, I spent, I feel like I spent the majority of my childhood pleasing and trying to be perfect. And that really set me up for how I went into my marriage. The idea that if I could just perform and be good enough, then that would solve all the problems. And I, I hadn't had any problems doing that up until my marriage. I had been the Able A student, yeah. the valedictorian, the basketball player, the, you know, flute player, who, whatever I did, I, I performed well and I got a lot of praise for it. And so there wasn't really any reason to think going into marriage that I couldn't do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you think marriage would be like? I think I thought that if I just worked hard enough, that it would all work out. Um, one of the things that really, when I think about faith my 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 dad had had a sort of i don't want to say a run in but there was an there was an event that happened early on in my childhood where we were all attending uh, they were part of a church and we attended a private school and there was a disagreement and um my dad decided that we were not attending the church anymore and we were not attending the school and i was put into public school at second grade and so we didn't attend church after that so there, it was an interesting way of growing up because we had, we had these, this sort of Judeo-Christian sort of 
outlook or worldview, but then I didn't go to church. I went to church with my friends. I went to church with you and Jenny Frost. We, we went to church together. I didn't yeah. go with my family. So it was a really interesting um, combination of things. I don't remember, again, it's like one of those things going back into your childhood. I don't remember being told certain things, but I remember kind of intrinsically, instinctually knowing there were rules about marriage. And if I followed the rules, if I was a, was a good girl in these certain ways, that my marriage would be blessed. Right. And so I followed the rules. I was a very good girl and I had a huge guilt conscience. And so I, you know, we're going to be blatant. I was a virgin until I was, until I was married and I got married at 28 years old. Yeah. So I felt if I had done the right thing, again, we go back to this perfection, that marriage would, would my marriage would be blessed. That's what I was told. And um, I think a lot of the, the generation that came after me that experienced the purity culture, I wasn't of that generation, but I felt it. And I felt it, the consequences of it. So when my marriage started to sort of unravel, there was nothing to, I had no sense of why. Why is this happening? This, my marriage is not being blessed right now. What is going on? And I had no tools. I didn't have, marriage wasn't talked about. We, we didn't talk about problems in my family. We didn't, uh, we didn't have discussions. It was sort of my dad's way or the highway. And my mom acquiesced to that. So I'd never had any models of having a disagreement and working through them. Right, working through conflict positively. One of the biggest things that I did in my marriage as I walked into it is I modeled my father's way of communication, which when I look back, I am so ashamed of because that way of communication was you bring in your soapbox, you throw it down on the ground, you stand up on it, you pontificate about what you think, then you grab your box and you leave the room. There's no discussion. And I very early on in my marriage communicated with my, with my husband that way, which is awful, awful. I didn't know how, I, how uh, there was another way to do it. Right. And even though the problems that we had, you know, were from both sides, I think that that way of communicating with him was super destructive. Okay. So how long were you married? Well, I say 12 years. We actually were, we were together until he moved out 11, but that last year, so we were separated. So, but I still count it. Yeah. It was was hard. It was a hard year. I'm going to take it. I'm going to count all of those years. Every single day. So at what point did you know that in those, in those 12 years, did you know that things were starting to, starting to crumble? That is a really good question. I, I feel like, well, there was a couple factors that happened. We decided to, we bought a house and we decided to do this massive remodel, which as every, every married couple knows is just the best way to have the best relationship ever. (laughs) Sarcasm included. So we started this remodel and at the same time, uh, Brian decided to go back to school. And so, um, we, started the remodel. He went to school. We started a period of time. So that was actually, if I think back, that's 2006. We didn't finish the house until 2010. 
for almost four years of, of being together, working on this crazy stressful project, and we never saw each other. Now, combine that with the fact that um, my ex has always really struggled with school and he had decided to do this. He had, he's a super talented designer, but he really wanted to go get a degree and he'd never gotten a college degree. So he decides to go back to school and continues the same pattern that he had had in high school of struggling with classes. So for those of you that have had a spouse go back to school or a partner go back to school, it's tough, right? But there's right. an end in sight. There's a two-year end in sight or a three-year end in sight. We had been, he'd been going to school part-time for three years at the point that the house was finished and there was no end in sight. He was failing classes, class after class after class. And I would come to him and say, hey, is there a way that we can stop for a moment, maybe reassess what's going on? It was never like, you have to stop this, but we were never, ever together. So we, the only time we were together is when we were painting or tiling or working mm. on the house. And then he was studying, trying to pass these classes. So by the time that house was finished, we were roommates. We had, we had sort of lost any connection except for this house, this giant albatross that was on our shoulders. So we had decided that when the house was finished, we would go to counseling. Both of us had agreed that and had looked forward to it, saying, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. It felt like there was this giant rug and we just kept sweeping things under it. And, and when the house was finished, there was this like bulky beast, you know, all the things that were under the rug. So we head off to counseling. The counselor decides that we should do individual counseling prior to couples counseling, that we were, you know, we're bringing our own baggage. We kind of need, needed to deal with our own baggage before sure. we could deal with, the, with our group baggage. So we go into counseling for about six months. And at the six-month mark, I thought with the house kind of out of the way, it was done, there was no more energy being put on this particular project, that things would shift, things would change. We were in counseling, but it didn't. In fact, it got worse. I never, I still never saw my, my husband and I just, I felt there was, as I said, there was no end in sight. So we ended up having a group counseling appointment with him and his counselor and me and my counselor. We come together, I start crying and it wasn't a matter of I'm done. It was something has to change. I had nothing in my mind that I was done with a marriage. It hadn't even crossed my mind, partly because I had been taught that divorce was not an option. Right. You don't, you don't divorce. You, you know, that is not in God's will. So here I am at the table saying something has to change. I never see you. We, we don't have a marriage anymore. And the vitriol that I got back from my, from my husband at that point was that I was the problem. Something, something had to change was me. And there was so much anger coming out of him that the, the counselor said, we think that you should separate for a little bit. And that was April 9th. Was that shocking? It was. It was. And I, I remember the date. It was April 9th, 2011. And, and I, in the moment, even I'm, I'm, I'm struggling for words right now because going back, I had that same feeling of what, like, how is this even possible? Because most people, there's very few, if you look at, look at the statistics, <clears throat> excuse me, there's very few separations that end with people getting back together. It's mm -hmm. just not very common. Now, usually what, what happens is if you look at, again, the kind of the statistics is if people separate 
they generally will get back together within a couple of weeks because they, they have a moment to be alone and realize what they what they've let go of, what what they're losing, what they're in their process of losing, or if if it you know if the separation lasts a month, you're probably you're probably out of luck. And so, I was that was in my brain, and Brian decided that he wanted to leave. Now it took that was April, and it took him until September to actually leave, and that period of time between between april and september was incredibly hard i felt like i was in marriage purgatory uh he was still acting like everything was okay um i used a metaphor one time describing it to a friend it was like our marriage was this really precious vase i remember you telling me this and it was sitting on the edge of you know the edge of the table and in that in that moment of of the the separation and that process it was it was if as if the vase had gotten pushed off shattered on the floor and i'm on my knees you know blood on my hands super dramatic but it felt that way at the time um trying to put the pieces together and my my husband was just stepping over me trying to get a beer out of the fridge just ignoring the fact that it was there that's how it felt from That's hard imagery. <laughs> yeah. Didn't expect that. Yeah. But when he finally did leave in September, it took me pushing for a couple months to try to have a conversation again. And when we finally had that conversation, I, I believe it was November or something like that. That was the moment I knew because when we had finally had that first conversation a few months after he left, it was in a cafe on Mississippi Street, and uh, he he didn't seem regretful. He didn't he didn't that nothing had changed in his demeanor. He he seemed sort of okay. He was fine, and I was I was crushed. I was broken, and. He seemed like he just needed some more time to think about things. And right. it was almost I, like as he, as he was deciding you, if he wanted a new pair of boots or something. Right. As I remember it, you felt like there was just this sense of apathy that had come over him that was just like, just kind of had this meh. Yeah. <laughs> meh. It about. was kind of meh. Yeah. Well, and I, I found out later that he had already started a relationship with someone at that point in time. And I didn't find that out until the following March. Yeah. Um, and then, and then that made more sense to me. Um, so we didn't end up, we ended up divorcing the following August. And I, one of the things about my, my faith at that point is I was really trying to still be right. <laughs> I was still trying to do the right thing. Now, what's interesting is at the moment in time, I really wanted, I thought that I was doing it because I wanted to do the right thing from a spiritual standpoint, from God's perspective. But if after the years and I bury it, you know, I kind of go down in the layers, down to the, the deep pit where you know, you know what really is going on. I don't think I realized it then, but I wanted, I wanted people to view me as right and Brian as wrong. I wanted yeah. that more than anything. I wanted to do the right thing, not because I wanted to do the right thing in God's eyes. I wanted to do the right thing so that I could view, be looked at as, 
as good and Brian is bad. Right. And even though I there's got to be a villain. There's got to be a villain. Yeah. And even though I said that, I literally was say to people, I don't want to villainize Brian. And I didn't talk about him, but I really wanted them to think that. And right. um, because you know, this, this whole idea of perfection and this, 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 this achieving, I had failed this, the biggest thing that you can decide on, like, how could I fail this marriage? I was, I was an achiever. I mean, I, we've talked about this before, Jill, but we're threes on the Enneagram. Right. And it's literally called the achiever. Yes. And I could not, I couldn't achieve my way into saving my marriage. And this was crushing to me. And I had to, I had, it was so humbling. It was so, um, it was just really the first time that I felt like a true failure. Yeah. And for you, um, having kind of this, this faith background that the structure set up for you in that structure, divorce was a failure. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a mutual agreement or, or whatever, but it really was this, this failure feeling. Yeah. And you know, no one around me really, everyone was so supportive. I, I was lucky. I belonged to a faith community that was pretty supportive, or at least I, my friends, my, my people, my people, they were yeah. all really supportive. My, my parents were really supportive. Uh, it was really just this idea that you just didn't divorce. And so I went through this whole long process that I won't go into, but I really needed him to, to, to file for divorce because biblically from that from from the elders in my church had given me this sort of guide and i look back now and things have changed a lot in how i view things my faith has changed a lot but in that moment in time i really wanted to do it right again mm-hmm. and so the the kind of rules at that time where i was attending was that he needed to file he he was quote unquote abandoning me and that gave me the ability to divorce, to, to go through a divorce. So, so there are some faiths that look at that and say, there are certain rules as to how you can divorce. And one of those rules that makes it okay is if your spouse abandons you. And so I sat and waited a really long time waiting for Brian to file. And it actually took several men in his life to force him to it. Basically, telling him, hey, listen, you're already in another relationship. You need to file for divorce. You need to let this woman go, like, like release her from her contract, as it were. And so finally that happened. And, um, and, you know, within a, within a month we were divorced. And so that was really, really hard. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of, um, things that happened to me as far as the, I wouldn't say transformation, but the evolving of my faith in that process for sure. Yeah. I want to, I want to read you something. I, um, I am reading this book called faith after doubt by Brian McLaren. It's a brand new book out, but I was reading it last night and I came across this, um, this paragraph that I, I thought of you and thought of our conversation. And it says this, it says, for many of us, faith is our map of reality and our map of the universe. It tells us where we are, where we've been, where we're going and where to turn. But as soon as our trusted map starts stops matching reality, we feel disoriented. We have no idea where to turn, what to do and how to survive. So your map got totally jacked up. 
So how did you, how did you find your way through that? And what, what was transformative in your faith during that process? I feel like the, it's interesting because going back, I don't, I don't remember, you know, putting my fist in the air and railing at God at all. God was really, really close to me during, during my divorce in the sense that when I say that, it sounds sort of amorphous, but I felt God's presence during the separation and the process of my divorce more than I'd ever felt. Mm. And I, it as was a comforter, God as a comforter, God as a comforter. I felt I, I, um, during that time, I, I actually was painting a lot. I hadn't, it was the first time I'd painted in a long time. I was painting images from the Psalms. I would, I would put them by my bed at night. I would pray. I would, I would ask God for comfort through them, through the Psalms. And it was, it was amazing. It was an incredibly hard time, but at the same time, I, I did feel this comfort. I felt I felt that even though the map had failed, that there was this presence with me in, in, the, in the unknown territory, as it were. So as I started to sort of heal from the divorce and I went on the Camino, I felt, and then eventually to, you know, my travels, I started to feel like I had been, I'd been living in this way where I would talk about grace. I would talk about God's grace and not we, you know, we don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to earn God's love. But I realized that over the course of my life, I had been uh, trying to achieve my way to God's love, to be worthy. Yes. And there's this book that I started reading that a friend, my one of my best friends was reading and had recommended to me that really changed my whole perspective. And it's a, a book called Everything Belongs by Richard Rohr. And Roar became this voice uh, to me that was really changed some of my views about God. I realized that I, I hadn't viewed God's love in the way that I had verbally been saying it. I had been, I'd been, I mean, very similarly, just like my dad, I needed to prove myself, prove, my, prove how worthy I was by being perfect. That's exactly what I was doing. And when I was knocked off the map, Honestly, in some ways, it was this great relief. <laughs> like, get I off that totally treadmill of working it out. <laughs> I had totally screwed up. I couldn't keep up with the Joneses anymore. I wasn't going to have the marriage that I thought. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't fit the perfect mold of the perfect Christian wife. So I just let it go. And then this letting go, there was this great. It was like a great surrender and a great like huge breath of relief to be honest with you and and through the process of the travels and reading this book i remember having this moment in the bathi in ayana where i i was praying i was reading and i started to cry and i started to get really mad because i had this moment of thinking about you know how they talk about the thief on the cross and and how he would just whisk up to heaven just as well. It didn't matter. Right. He'd been this horrible person his whole life. And I realized I was mad about that. I wasn't like, oh, isn't it great that everyone gets love from God? I was mad. I'm like, I have been working my ass off right. to prove, to be worthy. And you're saying everyone gets it. I don't like that. I don't like that setup. Um, maybe you can edit this out, but that's bullshit. Yeah. And 
I was so mad for like an hour. I yelled and I screamed and I cried. And then I just sort of like lost all my energy and had this moment of acceptance that I was now part of the other group. <laughs> right, right. And how good is that moment? And how beautiful, grace. yeah. How beautiful that was. And then through that process over the course of, you know, it's now been that, that was 2016 in that, that moment, you know, it's been five years. I feel like I've really moved towards this idea of instead of God being concerned about right thinking, that, that God is this, this being open, that God isn't as concerned about how right we are about anything that we think about whether it's, you know, doctrine, um, whether it's the hot topics of the day, uh, God is really concerned about how we love people. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that surrender, in that releasing, that there, there came this great openness that God was so much bigger than I had imagined. And I think a lot of my faith prior to the divorce was that God had a set of boxes that I needed to check. And because he was making me check these boxes, he almost, he was in this box himself. He was this certain, you had to do certain things to be a certain way. Right. And a lot of people weren't, weren't even allowed in the box. Right. So, but I was going to make it, I was going to check all the boxes. And then, and then when I couldn't anymore, I let go of that. And I realized that I had made God so small. And so I think that transformation of allowing God to be God, the mystery, the great mystery of who God is, has opened me up in a lot of ways. Um, you might call me, people might put a moniker on it. It might be progressive Christian. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I'm a progressive. I, I don't like putting labels on things, but right. I'm probably, I'm definitely more of a progressive, progressive Christian than a, than a conservative Christian. But, but the thing that I love is that, I'm probably going to think differently about God next year than I do this year. Right. And, and that's, that's okay. And that's a beautiful thing. And I think, I think a lot of people who I would talk to who are still more conservative, that is really a huge problem for them. They really want to hold on to something and it has to be the same. And I don't think that that, that for me is not true. I think I'm going to grow. I'm going to change. I'm going to experience life and people. Um, there are some there are some unchangeable things about God. And really, to me, it comes down to how do we love people? Are we loving people? Um, yeah. And so well, it sounds like you moved from a really linear, almost mathematical equation of God. If I do this, then plus this, it should equal this to, uh, to a God that is um, more ever, ever present and, um, and absolutely operates in grace that we can't understand. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for that. I mean, it's weird, but I, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, I would never, of course, you know, you talk to a lot of people, all the people that you talk to with trauma, I don't know how many of them would look back and say, I'm grateful that this horrible thing happened, happened to me. Um, right. in my particular case, I am really grateful. Um, because I feel like the life that I have, the person that I've become, the, the choices that I 
you know, that blank slate, that clean, that white canvas that we talked about, like I've been able to step into it in a, in a, in a way that I never would have had I still been married and, and in that relationship. And, you know, I feel like Brian and I were this perfect storm of, of two people that, that got married, had no idea how marriage worked and, and really we have equal, we had equal, you know, blame in, in that marriage failing. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, it was, there wasn't a villain. Uh, there was not a villain. It was two people, just mm. broken people trying to do something together that didn't have the tools yeah. and the resources to do it. So I'm able to look back now. I mean, don't get me wrong. <laughs> That's taken many years to be able to do that. Yeah. Forgiveness takes a long time. And, and it's um, a process. It's, it's a huge process. And um, I'm, I, feel, I feel very, uh, very grateful that I've been able to, to, to enter into that space of, yeah. of, of forgiveness and grace for both of us. Yeah. And maybe you've already, I'm going to ask you to kind of put a period at the end of this sentence. Um, and maybe you've already um, answered this, but what do you wish you had known about faith at the time of the divorce mm -hmm. that you know now? Could you just kind of summarize what you just said? One of the things that I didn't do in the beginning of our marriage was really accept Brian for who he was. Mm. And I realized along the way through the divorce and in these years past that really all of us want so desperately to be known and to be seen and to be valued and to be loved for who we are. And I wish I had known how to do that. Mm. I feel like I've learned a little bit more how to do that. I'm, I'm growing in that area. I think it's a lifelong journey for sure. Uh, but I, wish that I had that perception of acceptance and openness that I, that I had, because I think it, I think it would have changed everything. Honestly, I think we could still be together if, if we had both been able to see each other and accept each other for who we were. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I, you know, I know, like you said, with any trauma, it, it changes how we view not only ourselves, but how we view the world and certainly how we view our faith. And, and so I appreciate you sharing that. Well, we've gone over our time, but I love talking to you. I know I could do it for hours. I know. Let's, let's, let's do it for hours off, off, off the microphone. Yes, let's do that. So I think we're going to have a little artist retreat and we'll do that. Sounds perfect. Sounds good. Well, I love you and thank you for sharing your perspective and just your, your rich understandings that have come through this time of, time of turmoil. Uh, it's my pleasure. So glad to be here. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillReilly.Author, and Twitter, JillReillyAuthor. To contact Jill, email jill at jillreilly.org.